I was a kid that was really good at school. I started college when I was 14. By the time I was 23, I had a PhD in physics from Princeton, a master's degree in mathematical economics also from Princeton, a master's degree in geophysics and space physics from UCLA, and a bachelor's degree in math. A friend of mine used to say I was trying to have more degrees than a thermometer, <laughs> which, you know, uh, ultimately I failed, but I did get a lot of, of degrees. Nathan, this is such a delight to have you here. Thank you for making time to come on our show. Oh, my pleasure. You probably don't know this, but you and I have already met. And we met about over a decade ago, about 12 years ago. And this is my story, <laughs> right? I was speaking at this conference and I was uh, very nervous. We were launching our startup uh, in the backstage. So I'm waiting there, waiting to be mic'd up and uh, just pacing back and forth, trying to like practice my lines, just very, very nervous. At that time, at least, I'd not done a lot of public speaking events. And so I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. Everyone's going to laugh at me. Um, you come up and I see you wearing a badge, but the badge was turned around. So I had no idea who you were. Obviously, we we know you. We've known you for years, but I don't know how you look like. So you walk up and you're like, hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm like, oh, the mic guy is finally here. <laughs> Uh, he kind of like <laughs> mic me up, <laughs> and so I'm like, "Yes, hi, Nathan." And I'm like, "Okay, let's like get this going. Like, let's get set up." And you're and you're like, "So, what are you here for?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm speaking. I'm launching my company." He's like, "Oh, what what kind of company is this?" I'm like, "Wow, this mic guy is so chatty. Like, <laughs> I just want to be done. <laughs> like, why is he talking to me? What is going yeah. on?" And I'm just in my mind, just trying to be like, "Got to focus. Got to focus." And then I realized that you don't actually mic me up and you walk away and you go stand off in this corner. And I'm like, huh? Okay. <laughs> and then the other guy comes in, mics me up, gets set up. So I go up on stage, do my whole presentation. It goes well. Um, finish the whole thing, launch the startup. Everyone says, thank you, applause, whatever. Get off the stage, go all the way around and go sit in the last row in the audience, this big auditorium in Southern California. And then I go see... Okay, who's on stage? And I sit there just taking, catching a breath. There's you. And <laughs> and you're on stage sitting there. Uh, I think Kara Swisher is interviewing mm -hmm. you. And you're, and she's like, welcome, Nathan mm -hmm. Merwold. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, yeah. this was Nathan Merwold. <laughs> yeah. I totally messed up this opportunity to talk to you. But later on that evening, I came in and I was like, I'm so sorry. Uh, I thought you were the mic guy. And uh, that was my guy. Did not do it. Did not mic you up. <laughs> but that was my first in-person yeah. uh, meeting of you. And you know, since then, we've always wanted to have you on the show, and um, you know, just talk to you. This is our bucket list mm -hmm. dream guest kind of episode. So thank you for making the time mm -hmm. and for talking to me then and being so chatty about understanding my structure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm glad it all worked out. Yeah. I'm glad it all yeah. worked out too. So Nathan for what do you who are you and what do you do? Let's start there. Well, I I thought this was going to be simple questions. <laughs> um I sometimes have this problem at if I'm at a cocktail party or some other context where people don't know me and I'm they say, "Well, what do you do?" And I never know quite what to say because there's many things I could say, but if I say too many of them, they're just going to think this guy's a liar. <laughs> oh, there's something wrong. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I could say I'm a cookbook writer. 
Um, and I am. Yes, I, I write some of the world's largest cookbooks. Um, I, I hope they're actually really good at cookbooks also, but they're definitely, indisputably, they're the world's largest cookbooks. Yeah. Definitely the most gorgeous, intricate Beautiful photography cookbooks. in any cookbook uh, ever. Including uh, Modern well, Pizza that just that yeah, released a couple you. years ago. Yeah. It's awesome. It's great. Yeah, I just released one very recently called Food and Drink, which is just food photos. There's nice. no no recipes in that one. Nice. Um, but I also uh, study dinosaurs. So I do research on dinosaurs and... I take photographs all over the world of all sorts of things. Food for uh, my next book will be on pastry. So uh, beautiful. I'm eating and photographing pastry all over the world. Uh, and <laughs> we're great. learning how to make it here and figure out scientific things about it and so forth. Uh, and I, I also, if you're in the tech industry, I used to be the first chief technology officer of Microsoft. I guess I'll always be the first one, but <laughs> anyway, I've I haven't done that for many years, um, and then there's a ton of other things I do research on. Or uh, I also run a tech company called Intellectual Ventures. We've invented lots of cool new stuff. Building a nuclear so, reactor on the side—that's yeah. like a hobby project. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, when we when we're doing the homework for this episode, first of all, you're like a really hard guest because just the introduction for you is like so confusing. Like, where do you even start? Um, and then there are seven, maybe a dozen different, totally unconnected topics that we need to talk to you about. But maybe a, a really good place to start uh, is your childhood. Because you, you know, when a lot of people are maybe partying and hanging out with their friends, you finish college in your teen years. And then, yep. you know, you go on to, if I remember, actually work for Stephen Hawking for a little bit of time. Yeah. So walk me through that period of time. And I have to ask, what was it to what was it like to work for uh, Stephen Hawking? I was a kid that was really good at school. Um, I started college when I was 14. Um you know, by the time I was 23, I had a PhD in physics from Princeton, a master's degree in mathematical economics, also from Princeton, a master's degree in geophysics and space physics from UCLA, and a bachelor's degree in math. Wow. So a friend of mine used to say I was trying to have more degrees than a thermometer, <laughs> which, you know, uh, ultimately I failed, but I did get a lot of, of degrees. Uh, and then... Uh, you know, my, the, the last of those was in physics, and I was a postdoctoral researcher with Stephen Hawking. Uh, and you asked what it's like to work with Stephen Hawking. Well, the thing about Stephen is he, he's brilliant. Um, there's many brilliant physicists, of course, but um, he's particularly brilliant. But the other thing about Stephen is, of course, he lived with enormous physical challenges. Yeah. Uh, he was stricken with ALS, sometimes also called Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a horrible disease where you lose control of the motor parts of your body. But uh, the autonomic nervous system, so the things keep you breathing and bump, blood pumping, well, those still work. Mm -hmm. So you're alive, but you're kind of trapped in your own body. And yet, despite that, Stephen had just the best attitude you could imagine. He loved telling jokes. He wanted to figure out what, you know, the fundamental physics of the world. So as a result, it was very hard to feel sorry for yourself working for Stephen. Yeah. And, and, and even since then, you know, you think, oh, God, you know, I've had a terrible day. Everything, nothing's going my way. It's, yeah. And you're like, but wait, yeah, I can walk. Yes. Yeah. You have <laughs> no excuses. I can myself. Yeah. I can, you know, it, it just so 
to, to accomplish what he did under such incredible challenges is uh, really an amazing story of the human spirit. Um, so amazing, I decided my human spirit just isn't quite as great as his. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, I mean, one of the things, you know, I was looking at your back on that era, right? Like, at what age did you realize that you were capable of things that the average 12, 13, maybe earlier kid was not perhaps capable of? And I'm curious how it may, that may have shaped you because you, are, uh, you have such a unique, you know, Teen, uh, uh, you know, teenager yeah. uh, upbringing and time. There's plenty of things that where I make mistakes or I think afterwards, oh, you should have done this. So it, it's not like, oh, yeah, I think of myself as a genius. I actually kind of think of myself as more of an idiot, to be honest. Um, but I was really good at school, and that was pretty straightforward. Um uh, when I was very little, it was it took lots of courage for me to contradict the teacher if the teacher was wrong, but I would sometimes do that. Uh, and I would get bored if the stuff was too slow. And so that's why they kept having me skip grades. And there were some people who, uh, at the schools that I went and said, oh, if you skip the grades, you're just going to become a horrible you know, misshapen adult, and maybe they were right. <laughs> but I was fairly adamant that I wanted to keep learning things, and I wouldn't keep learning things if they held me back for no reason. Uh, I remember there was one thing where they, the teachers, a couple of the teachers, not all of them, some of the teachers really liked me, but some one of the teachers and uh, the head of the school had to meet with me and my mom and they wanted me to to hold me back for my own good. Mm. Once, so have, repeat a whole year. That seemed like torture. Mm. And I said, well, okay, but I'm not the weirdest kid in the class. How many people who are the right age for the class in theory, who are all just as, you know, arguably less well-adjusted, than I, how many of them are you holding back? Yeah. And they said, well, uh, well uh, you know, and I said, so, you know, this is just, uh, unfortunately, wokeism hadn't developed the part where I could have said they were being ageist. But they were being ageist. Now, ageist with a nine-year-old, but still. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it, uh, uh, I, I, I didn't want to be frustrated, uh, you know, doing stuff that was just way too easy. And even though they skipped me in grades, it was always still too easy. Um, but, uh, at least it was a little bit better when I could, you know, do two years for every one, or I could do, and then of course I had lots of other interests and things mm -hmm. on the side. I started being interested in cooking when I was around nine, photography also when I was around nine. Um, so, uh, and I read very extensively in all kinds of topics mm -hmm. besides, uh, what was the literal schoolwork. You know, there are people who say that, that it's bad for children in general. They don't recommend doing that. Um, it's very hard for me to say because I've only grown up one way. Right. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you can't. If I was part of an identical twins, you could have done this ghoulish experiment where you treated one of us one yeah. way and the other one a different way. And maybe that would give you some kind of a hint. But uh, as it was, uh, I have always been happy that I took the path that I did. Yeah. Um, See, I never was the weirdest kid in class. Yeah, I was a really bookish, nerdy, 
studious student who mm-hmm. wasn't one of the cool kids. Yeah. But I always had other friends that were just like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, okay, they were two, three, four, five years older than I was. But so I think quite correctly, there's been a lot of focus since the time I was young on dealing with the special challenges mm-hmm. that some kids have. And of course, some kids have a learning disability. Uh, so they have something like dyslexia. They have other things. And of course, it's great to cater to those things, um, there's usually much less attention to catering to smart kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet the smart kid is being just as disadvantaged in in some way. And it's sort of like, oh, well, they're they're smarter than they need to be anyway. They'll figure it out or the hell with them or I don't know what. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's much less focus on that. Uh, so I, I'm happy that the teachers and people around me saw fit to let me continue in school. I certainly know other smart people or other people who did well in school who just got bored because they stayed in the same age. They were not allowed to go ahead. They got super bored. And then that led to them uh, sometimes doing really useful things, but often doing useless and self-destructive things because mm-hmm. they were bored from school and they dropped out and so on and so forth. You kind of have this amazing, uh, um, you know, time frame where you work for Stephen Hawking, and then a few years later, um, you know, to your point, you wind up, uh, you know, in the early, early days of Microsoft. So maybe one place I want to start there is, what is your first memory and impression of meeting Bill Gates? I met Bill Gates uh, at a point where my, my, I did, started a little company, mm-hmm. which was way harder to get fu- um, companies funded back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So this would be 84, I think we started. It'd be much easier now, by the way, if somebody with your background- Way easier now, way harder then. (laughs) But my little company had technology that Microsoft was interested in. So I went up to meet with uh, Microsoft about it. And they kept having me meet with people and then rearranging the schedule. And so eventually they had me go meet with Bill. I got along really well with him. He asked lots of questions and uh, I was able to answer those questions and- one of the interesting things is uh, my little company had been people had sought to acquire us once before, and that deal kind of fell apart. Um, and it wasn't clear that that would have worked out. And I said, well, the good news is I think the Microsoft really needs us, but I think they also want us and yeah. would actually use <laughs> us. Because sometimes you can have something where it says, oh, yes, we want that, but we don't really we're actually kind of antithetical. The, the company's culture is antithetical yeah. to actually using what you get right. and this one that seemed like it worked out and of course hist- history was it it did work out this is something that we think about on founders you know which is like a big sort of our listeners right and we talk to people when they are fundraising when they're trying to go sell their business and that kind of thing and this comes up often as like mm-hmm. a topic for us where it's like when do you go sell your business or how do you go think about acquirers <laughs> how do you go scale that kind of thing so it's really cool that you got that experience um, once where you had like this acquisition on the table, but then you got to end up eventually ended up working with Bill Gates, which worked out really well for us in that yeah, respect. That's true. I mean, we wouldn't have a, <laughs> we, we, we wouldn't have like been together, you know, which is really important. Obviously, I'd have our careers without all of that. And Microsoft was super formative for yeah. us. You know, we spent our first, you know, a year before we graduated, we got into uh, Microsoft and uh, moved to Seattle mm-hmm. and just ended up like this was our our initial framework for how companies should be run, how large scale uh-huh. businesses should be run is all based off of 
Microsoft and you work with some really smart people, really humble, nice people, yeah. super smart. And it's just this like time in our lives that we just set yeah. it in stone. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, thank you. Right. Uh, and and the reason why, you know, we have such fond, uh, actually what, what I was telling Nathan before we started, like when I joined Microsoft, I went and looked up all the, the Microsoft lore. And Nathan is a key part of Microsoft lore. And I joined like maybe many, many years after you had left and gone on to do other things because your memos and documents and stories about you would be spread through the hallways and the email servers. <laughs> when you look at your role back then, in some ways, a lot of broad people remember, you know, mythologize in many ways is your roadkill on the information superhighway memo, yes. you writing about having a phone in every pocket, there are multiple emails of yours. Yep. Maybe let's start with this. What is the secret to writing a great memo? First of all, it depends on what your audience is. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I used to say that being a tech visionary is writing sci-fi with uh, a really boring plot, <laughs> but <laughs> with the virtue that it's trying to be true. Right. <laughs> um, now, it's also true, though, that if you wanted to be a, a tech visionary that gets widely quoted in the media, Generally, the way to do that is to avoid the trying to be true part, mm. because there's you get more much more play the more outlandish things are. So, you know, if you say, gee, I think self-driving cars will be really important in the coming decades. That's too reasonable, <laughs> you know, as opposed <laughs> to saying, oh, there'll be a million self-driving uh, taxis, you know, in 12 months from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah which fairly famously has been uh, claimed. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is in the context of the audience being making headlines, very few people come back and ask you afterwards. So yeah. th there's no downside this, to just exactly. lying through your teeth. <laughs> um, yeah. Whereas it, 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 what I was trying to do with Microsoft was to make, um, make really, uh, when I would write those memos, I was trying to, predict what the future of the industry would be in a way that would be very um uh well very come true and come true in a short enough time frame that would matter to us mm -hmm. you know, it also isn't very useful in the co context of a company to predict stuff that's 20 years away mm -hmm. first of all it's so uncertain who the hell knows but even if you did know 100 percent, what does it matter right yeah. it's uh, yeah. 20 years is way too long a time frame uh, so uh, I did predict correctly many of the big developments, maybe most of the big developments uh, in the certainly the personal computer industry uh, and some more generally than that. Um, yeah, maybe one good one to get go deeper on is, and maybe I would say is maybe one of the more famous ones uh, is, um, you know, just roadkill on the information superhighway. So walk me through just maybe the time and the place and the setting and how that came about and the aftermath. We knew that there was, uh, there's a couple of different things happening, right? One was that it was clear that PCs were becoming more and more and more capable mm -hmm. for doing what would traditionally be called entertainment so you could play video now back then it was shitty looking video compared to what we get today but mm -hmm. eh, there was video and uh games mm -hmm. were getting more and more realistic and it was not a giant leap to say you know this more realistic thing is going to keep going until it's a as good as animated movies and then it's going to blow past that to be 
you know, eventually it'll be indistinguishable from a movie shot with a camera. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have uh, uh, informa- you know, electronic networks that connected all of us, uh, which in the era that I wrote that, it, the internet was still uh, nascent, but, but growing. Uh, but there was also cable TV, and uh, cable TV was had gone from an analog thing to where it was clear at that point already that the next generation was going to be all digital. That set of things was going to change almost everything in the, uh, oh, certainly in the entertainment, but more generally in, in the information-oriented businesses. Now, information-oriented businesses then and now you could also call media-oriented businesses. Um, and those have been very, very shaped by the notion that there were bottlenecks mm-hmm. and a small number of bottlenecks. So you would apply to various publishers to get your book published. It was hugely difficult to get your book published. There was a book that uh, was a bestseller and won a national book award that was written. It's called The Confederacy of Dunces, a tragic story written by a guy who couldn't get it published, became despondent, killed himself. His mother convinced the University of Louisiana Press to publish it because they, she found a professor who loved the book. And it was a damn bestseller. Mm. And so the whole process that denied that person a, a, a chance during his lifetime then uh, ultimately built his legacy. A, another great example was Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. Okay, the same, the same year that Stephen publishes a brief history of time, mm-hmm. uh, which is about the effects of quantum mechanics on the origin of the universe and the origin of time. Madonna publishes a book called Sex, mm-hmm. and it has pictures of her naked in it, including in a compromising way with a German shepherd. Now, which of those two things you think is going to sell more? And suppose it, it turned out Stephen's book was published by Cambridge University Press. So no, Monada never called her for that book. So they were not direct competitors. Yeah. Right. But just imagine they were direct competitors. Well, the fact is Stephen's book outsold Madonna's by like a factor of 10. Wow. Wow. Okay. okay. And that's what I used to say back at the time, and it's in that memo, is if you're trying to guess what the public likes, it's not just hard, it's actually impossible. And the people who do it, do it out of a fear for being criticized because, mm-hmm. oh my God, we only have, you know, a publisher only has a small number of books that they can put out every year. Yeah. Uh, a At the time, there were only three and a half TV networks. Mm-hmm. And there was only, you know, mostly you wanted prime time because getting at 2 a.m. was really hard to get an audience. Yeah. So there's a very tiny number of TV shows and there was even fewer movies made. And in all of those cases, it was distribution of the uh, information that was this big bottleneck. And that bottleneck both prevented good things from reaching a wide audience, uh, but it also it, it, it tremendously restricted what the diversity of things were. And that's diversity in every way, uh, both in the modern sense of diversity. But yeah, how much room is there for... Uh, quantum physicists writing about the origin of the universe and time. Okay. <laughs> if you have only a limited number of slots, you don't do that. Yeah. So I said, hey, this is going to totally change 
um, all aspects of media and publishing. And there was a bunch of examples that I had in there. I said, look, the newspaper business at the time was this very funny thing where they made all of their money on classified and display ads, but they actually pretended. Fortunately, they, there was this, this sort of bizarre thing in the industry that they said, no, it's actually about the journalism. Mm-hmm. So we will have, well, like, pay journalists, we'll have this Pulitzer Prize thing that was about you know, rewarding journalists, and we'll put tons of effort in, and we'll have high journalistic standards. And the whole thing was fund was funded by ads to tell you what was on sale mm-hmm. at the local uh, supermarket or the local auto dealer, <coughs> uh, and uh, classified ads mm-hmm. for people selling used cars or uh, looking for a date or whatever. Um, and of course, those ads were terrible yeah. in, as a user experience. Yeah. Okay, they would use this tiny print and you'd have to look at it with a magnifying glass usually. And and then there would be all of these uh, abbreviations that people would use because you didn't want to spell words out all the way because it was so expensive and blah, blah, blah. I was like, hey, that's all going to totally change. Change. That's all going to be dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then what about the TV things? As it stands books are way, were at the time infinitely more available than TVs or video. Um, books books would stay in print for many years, not true for TV or movies. Um, you'd sometimes get reruns and things, but way more limited than books. And there are things called libraries where you could go get stuff. And I said, well, <clears throat> what happens to the world of movies, video, uh, TV, and music when you put everything online at all times. The internet was around and it was growing, but it was, the focus at the time was on the information superhighway of which the internet was viewed as one aspect and cable TV was another aspect and Mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, And so I used the highway metaphor and I used the idea of roadkill. Mm -hmm. And uh, then that uh, people at Microsoft told other people about it, even though the memo was in principle confidential. And so, it, you know, who knows, maybe someone mm-hmm. used the idea, you inf- roadkill on the information highway a decade before me. I've got no idea. But so far as I know, mm-hmm. I that metaphor was my own. And it became very widely used that, hey, all of these companies were going to be roadkill. And of course, that caused all those companies to say, oh, that's all bullshit. Yeah. Yep. Um. The funniest was the music uh, industry, which says, oh, no, no, we'll never allow that to happen. And I'm like, yeah, you and what army, buddy? That's going to happen. I didn't think that the music industry would go away because people like to listen to music. But the way in which it was uh, monetized and Having these gatekeepers, like having gatekeepers and not having democratized access, like... You're seeing this push in every industry for people just wanting to reach their audience, go direct, not have these middlemen and gatekeepers. And music is like yeah, the prime the example. Gatekeepers had an impossible job. Yeah. Okay. There was no way they were going to satisfy both the broad set of interests that right. people have. Right. Nor were they very likely to take a bet on saying, yeah, you know, I got one more book to do. Should I do Madonna, <laughs> the biggest superstar of the era? Um, uh, or should I do Stephen Hawking when it, 
in retrospect, we know the right decision yes. is oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, Or, you know, the answer was both. Um, just in the Microsoft, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people are watching this, you know, they have lived with Microsoft their entire life. Like somebody joined Microsoft <laughs> recently and they said their code base they're working on is older than them, which kind of made me feel old. Uh, and uh, But you were at a very different era of Microsoft in the 90s and the 80s. For maybe founders and builders watching now, um, what do you think were underappreciated parts about Microsoft culture, the way folks like you, Bill, some of the people around then, like Jeff Rakes, there's a bunch of these folks around then. What do you think is underappreciated about how you operated? Well, I think Microsoft, uh, in, particularly in that era, I, I'm not the company now, but a lot of the same spirit is there. It was as close to a technical meritocracy as you could get. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's any organization with humans in it means there's always going to be some amount of human friction and uh, so forth. Well, but there was just a dramatic reduction in any degree of office politics. Mm. Um, at the time, all of the other tech companies, virtually every single one, not 100%, but very close, were run by people who uh, were the suits, who really didn't understand anything about uh, the fundamental technology. Mm. And those people could... They were useful in some ways. And Microsoft had business people too, of course. But um, it, it, it's very hard to manage something really well if you don't have a almost visceral understanding of the phenomenon and what it's what the power and potential is. Mm -hmm. um, it, at some point I was at Microsoft, I was making a pitch about pocket PCs which is what we, um, I called it the wallet PC, but I it, I said it would have cellular connections and email would be a, a big thing. And I was giving a presentation on this at the executive retreat. Um, and one of the other senior Microsoft executives said, okay, Nathan, <laughs> just stop right there. You know, there's going to be what? There's going to be like a million of these sold every year. It's going to be like a sharp wizard or some of the little gadget. And maybe in our dreams, we get 10 bucks each. So it's like $10 million a year. So why should we bother with any of this? <laughs> and so I like, I draw in my breath. And before I can speak, Bill, Bill Gates speaks up and he says, so what was your estimate of the total size of the PC market? In 1975, <laughs> mm. the guy just shuts up and I just went on with my talk. <laughs> and Bill played a very important role because uh, besides the direct decisions that he made, yeah, uh, it, there, was a, a, there was like a no bullshit factor that yeah. came from that. Yeah, yeah. And inevitably when you're making an important decision, particularly an important decision early on, there's going to be a diversity of opinion. There's going to be people who say that's brilliant. People say, oh, that's a terrible idea. We should do this instead. Mm -hmm. I, I think most people understood at Microsoft, most of the technical people in the management, that there'd be a fair hearing mm -hmm. and that Bill would hear it out and there would be something that would be based on the technical merits of it. And that technical merits was from someone who really understood both that, but also was able to make a visionary call mm -hmm. and 
you know, the, the visionary call that Bill had made long before I met him was the idea of graphical user interface. Mm -hmm. He'd seen uh, the graphical inter user interface work at Xerox Park. It was so much better than character mode PCs. He said, we're going to go all in for that. That was one of the big, big bets that Microsoft made that the rest of the industry didn't. And they didn't because they had people who were primarily, it was they had people who were business people mm -hmm. who said, but we're making so much money on this. We don't want to rock the boat. Why should we go change all of this? Why should we do it? But I'm, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm, you know, Microsoft was almost unique among tech companies, even to this day, not totally unique, but very close to it in uh, having multiple successful products. You know, the typical tech company at that era, and still many of them today, have one product that is, you know, 80% of revenue and 120% of profits mm -hmm. because everything else they do loses money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that would be, if you looked at Oracle, um, now you, you could have a reasonable discussion about saying, well, how do you divide between the um, uh, Oracle database sales and the customization consulting around it? Is that two things or one thing? But uh, Oracle's a company that has tried to do other stuff. And by acquisitions, they've added some things that I think have worked out for them. Yes. But it was very difficult. In much earlier era, Lotus 1, 2, 3, was the dominant spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Microsoft's spreadsheet at the time was called Multiplan, mm -hmm. um, which was nowhere near that. But Microsoft said, okay, we're not going to make a version, a character mode version of Multiplan to chase Lotus 1, 2, 3. We're going to make Excel, mm -hmm. which should be fundamentally graphical. Mm -hmm. And it was this giant bet. And there are lots of people in the company who were like, why are we making this huge bet? You know, graphics interface doesn't work yet. Yeah. And it's too slow, and it's too um, but um, but um, but um, but um. They had great programmers at Lotus, and and great technical people, you know, just more generally. But it was very hard for them to make a competitor to Lotus One Two Three because it would threaten their key mm -hmm. uh, business, their yeah. key uh, product. And so, like, they came out with a very innovative thing called Javelin. Mm. Um, Javelin was a a not a spreadsheet, but it was a. It was another idea for saying how could you do simple mathematical models mm -hmm. of a business. Right. So uh, I view spreadsheets as a programming language, as a programming language that lets you write a very simple program. And the graphical metaphor of having a 2D grid maps really well to the way people think about things to traditional accounting in the old days. The what accountants would have is they would have a big pad of paper and you could go to the back of a stationary store and they would have these things that are called columnar pads. And they, they some of them would be huge, you know, they'd be 17 by 11 or something. And they would all have all of these columns mm -hmm. so that you could put in columns for different costs and different this things for making big ledgers. Right. And people would be entering all that and then you know, using a hand calculator, a mechanical device or electromechanical to do the actual uh, tallying up of things. Well, at Lotus, they, I think, and many other companies, they succumbed to two different things. One was to say, okay, you know, Joe here wants to, or Jill wants to go start uh, her a new product yeah. thing. 
And we could put 10 good people on there. Right. But if we made the sales of our main product 1% better, yeah. it'd be vastly more than Jill's product could ever bring in. Bring in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes- so why don't we just make our main thing 1% better? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's not wrong, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Except for two things. One is the incremental 10 people that you give, even if it's 10 really good people, at a certain point, you're better off making that bet in a different area because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're more likely to contribute 0.1% than 1% mm-hmm. to that new thing. Not, not, not always. Not always, but yeah. That's but, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, pile on your, your main thing. But the problem is it will tend to lead you to pile onto your main thing with a large bloated team that then loses the, the incremental 10 people actually cost you productivity. Mm-hmm. Or, or was very inefficient productivity compared to saying, let's take 10 people off to start a new program and see how that goes. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and you had to worry about threatening them, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the multi, there were still people working on multi-plan. We were working on Excel and they were like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, we're, yeah. we're, multi-plan was nowhere in the United States, but it was the number one spreadsheet in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we made tons of money on multi-plan. I'm like, hey, yeah, we chopped liver. We're making all this money. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to think of cannibalizing yourself. Okay. I'm going to do a massive topic shift, right? Like, because there's cooking, there's dinosaurs, there's nuclear plants, there's I, asteroids. I, I just want to say, people have hobbies, right? Like, you have hobbies. <laughs> I have hobbies. We have hobbies. You know, I started out when I was a kid, like, stamp collecting, and then, like, slowly upgraded from there. I love photography, too. Um, I now have like three or four Leica cameras, which I'm really proud of Mm -hmm. and do a lot of work there. But, you know, it is very much a hobby. You take hobbies to the next level, right? And it's uh, (laughs) it it, it puts all of us to shame. I want to pick one specific hobby. And, you know, for folks who have not seen this, you have to watch, you know, your TED Talk from, I don't know, 14 years ago now. And you talk a lot about archaeology, bird bird poop. poop. There's a ton of stuff there. But I want to talk about cooking. Mm -hmm. And modernist cuisine. Yeah. What started this whole thing? Like, why do you do what you do specifically in this area of cooking? First of all, I have this general principle that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing to the best of your ability. Now, that's I don't apply that to absolutely everything because it's not like, well, yeah, I got to go to the grocery store, but I don't know what it would mean to go to the grocery store to the best of my ability or at the gas station <laughs> or some other, you know, yes, I go to the dentist to the best of my ability. But when it comes to a uh, something like photography or uh, cooking or other things, I like doing it really well. So I was into cooking since I was nine. Um, at nine, I told my uh, mom I was going to cook Thanksgiving dinner all by myself. Um, and I did. Wow. <laughs> Um, okay, that's, and? I mean, that would be the most <laughs> impressive b- part of your resume uh, overall. I mean, ever. <laughs> so I was self-taught in cooking. And then at some point when I was at Microsoft, I realized I had all of these degrees and all these topics, but I'd never gone to cooking school. So I actually got billed to give me a leave of absence from Microsoft to attend chef school in France. Wow. Okay. It's amazing. Um, so I went and I did that. Then I came I came back and uh, then worked at Microsoft for many more years. After I retired from Microsoft, I built a house and I had a big state-of-the-art kitchen. And I knew that there were a bunch of people doing uh, 
new innovative types of cooking, cooking that was inspired at least by science to one degree or another. And I had eaten at some of their restaurants and I knew that that was going on. And I naively thought, hey, I should learn this because, you know, I, I had this degree in French cooking from the a top school in France. Well, why don't I go figure this out too, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There was no big book. Now, if there had been a big book about that topic, I would have bought it. I would have been happy, you know, that <laughs> I, I would be a very, still a very serious cook, who lo person who loved cooking. But I realized that not only was there no big book, but there was tremendous amounts of misunderstanding about cooking. Um, even though I'd gone to this school that was all about, you know, passing along this cherished knowledge of French chefs from centuries of experience and these people knew how to cook actually they didn't um but the thing that's amazing about uh people is that people have been able to figure stuff out semi-empirically before they actually had the theories to mm -hmm. figure it out mm -hmm. and cooking is maybe one of the extreme examples of that Things that occur in cooking occur because of complex chemical reactions, complex physics. It's really hard to figure out. But people are like, well, let's just kind of try it. And like, hey, by the way, this works pretty well. And, and then over time, they start uh, experimenting more. And so we learned how to do lots of very complicated, complicated things. Um, uh, when modernist cuisine uh, came out, uh, one... Uh, reporter who was very critical of it interviewed me and they mm -hmm. said oh this is all about this complicated science why don't you do something simple and I said well like what simple food do you mean they said oh you know like uh, having um, a, a glass of wine with cheese and bread and I laughed at the guy because <laughs> I said cheese and bread and wine are like are the so three complex. most complicated things in all of cooking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And first of all, if you don't believe it, you just I invite you to go try. Mm -hmm. But second of all, there's a fundamental reason, which is those are biotech projects. Yeah. They're all about fermenting. And through long, hard experience, people have figured a lot of things out empirically about mm -hmm. how to make good cheese, wine, and bread. But it's tricky stuff. It turns out that even though people have figured that out, they actually didn't know the half of it. Yeah. Um, okay. I've never thought we'd ask a cooking question on our show, but let me ask you this. <laughs> somebody watching this and who has never done anything beyond a microwave, what is a a deceptively uh, simple, um, but okay, what is the first easy starter dish that you would recommend everyone here go master that would impress a guest? Well, okay, the simplest thing I tell people to do, although it won't necessarily in impress a guest unless they're a guest for breakfast, but maybe those are the ones you want to impress the most. <laughs> um, uh, hey, after the special night over, the breakfast really counts. Make scrambled eggs. Do this one thing with the scrambled eggs, which is most people would make three scrambled eggs for a portion. Maybe you have a fraction of that. Let's just say you're making three scrambled eggs. Do two, scra two whole eggs and one egg yolk. Separate the the mm -hmm. egg and just keep the yolk. Now you haven't added anything to it. You've just subtracted one yolk. So you have slightly less volume, but it tastes remarkably better 
than it does with three whole eggs. It's crazy how much better it tastes. So two whole eggs uh, in one yolk. So you remove the egg yep. white for mm-hmm. one of them. Oh my God, I am trying this oh, wow, tomorrow. Okay. okay, It's so simple. <laughs> and so in France, the, uh, the technique for scrambled eggs is you usually add a bunch of butter or you add some cream to it. Yeah. And that's good. It tends to dilute the egginess. Mm-hmm. The yolk has more fat. So you've changed the proportion of fat but you haven't added fat. You've actually just taken away some white. It's delicious. Now, the other thing is I would say then also stir. Some people uh, do their scrambled eggs where they cook them quickly. Some do them where they cook them slowly. Just stir a lot and take it off before you think it's done because it'll keep hardening up for the next 30 seconds to a minute after you take amazing. it off. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. No, it's true. So yeah. okay. it's really simple, yeah. but but this, give it a try. This might be the uh, folks. This might be the most useful bit in our podcast we've ever had. Okay, so uh, so okay, so um, I want to talk about dinosaurs and exploring the solar system, and because okay. you know you've been into archaeology a lot, and you're obviously you know you've been talking about the need for exploring the solar system. Maybe one quick question, which is, what do you think are the the lessons for the human race that you think you know we need to take from your study of dinosaurs and everything that has come before us like what do you think we underappreciate the the world of biology is way more uh diverse and strange than we have any way of knowing that we have some familiarity with the animals that are alive today not not perfect because we've driven a lot of them extinct or uh, of the animals alive today in africa or india or uh, other places around the world there's a lot of weird animals, and they're cool, and and I love those BBC wildlife documentaries. Oh, yes. Yeah, love them. Life is so was the history of life shows it was so much weirder than that, and, and dinosaurs are one of the examples. These animals that were enormously larger than the uh, any um, land mammals uh, that live today, um, very different in lots of other ways, uh, and. We've and yet they're totally gone. Mm. Um, they were the dominant uh, form of um, vertebrate life on Earth. Animals of the background. It, it, it's really a hard to beat beetles on numbers, but <laughs> um, dinosaurs dominated the Earth for 150 million years. Uh, human race has been around for, depending on how you count it, a million. Some people push it back a little bit. Some would make it a little bit shorter. You know, we, we had some other uh, close relative species that would take it back a few million. Yeah. So nothing like that period of time. Uh, yeah. And uh, and yet they all went away. And in fact, uh, if you just looked at history, you'd say almost all species have gone extinct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's some things like famously cockroaches today look and of course many species of cockroaches have gone extinct over the years but there are fossil cockroaches that look pretty much exactly like a cockroach today Mm -hmm. so it was ah the cockroaches will always be with us and yeah so far as we can tell they will but everything else has changed and changed enormously Mm -hmm. right and so i think that is one of the great lessons Uh, another great lesson is it's hard to figure out the aspects of those creatures. So, yeah. you know, we've studied dinosaurs since the late 19th century, uh, scientifically studied them. And we find brand new things that change our view mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's roughly 800 species of dinosaurs that are known. But there's also a new species of dinosaur found roughly once a week, hmm. typically 50 new species a year, and that's been going on for a long time. And that's partially a function of just how many people are looking for them. If you had more people looking for them, we'd find more. Mm -hmm. To compare that 800 species, there's 5,000 species of mammals, 10,000 species of birds, about 10,000 species of reptiles. So uh, almost certainly, and, and that's just what's alive today, that five or 10,000, historically way more. So for dinosaurs over that 200 million years, we'll never find them all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another thing that's funny about uh, finding fossils is you find fossils when an animal dies and it gets covered up with mud or sand or something like that, and then layers form on top and it just turns to rock. Sand and mud only build up in areas where there's lots of erosion and the erosion deposits things. Mm -hmm. So... River deltas are great for us. We love digging in river and what was once a river delta. Yeah. Uh, we love digging in what was once a lake mm -hmm. because in a lake you have sediment that flows in from rivers that feed the lake and it builds up. We, we know from our the world today there's lots of animals that live only in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Mountain goats, mountain sheep, uh, mountain predators like the uh, snow leopard. Dinosaurs must have had them. But we'll never find but, them. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, because mud and sand don't build up in the mountains. Mountains, yeah. Uh, they just don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's kind of always this debate about being a specialist in one field and going super deep. And obviously, you're maybe one of the best forms of the generalist. I am curious whether uh, you going across so many domains, have you been able to use insights or patterns or techniques from one and apply that to another? And if so, I'm curious to hear, hear a story. That's I do tons of that. Okay. Um, but you, you're right. The, generally, the world wants you to learn mo more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what you get lots of awards for <laughs> in general. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and I have friends who are chefs, friends who are dinosaur experts, friends that are physicists. And each of my friends can't figure out why I waste time and all that other shit. <laughs> okay. It's like, <laughs> What's wrong with you, Nathan? Yeah, there's a bunch of French chefs who are like, why do you care about all this software and nuclear stuff? <laughs> exactly. Well, and just like the nuclear people say, why does he cook? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <sighs> it, it, I mean, Bill Gates is a huge friend of mine, but he's asked, you can tell he's trying to be sensitive and not to... Mm -hmm. Actually, what, so what is it that you find so interesting about cooking? Yeah. <laughs> hey, B Bill, do you like the scrambled eggs or not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, he likes it when I cook for him, for damn sure. And he also says, and I think it's 100% true, my cookbooks are the only ones he's ever opened. Oh. <laughs> I, I think that is going to remain true. That is great. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, um, okay. But yeah. anyway, yes, I always use a technique from one to another. I mean, the simplest thing is the scientific method. Yeah. It sounds like a super basic thing, but it's true. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in cooking where people say, oh, X is true because of, and I always say, let's try that. Yeah. Let's just <laughs> test it. Or you say, um, how do you know? Because there's a lot of things that people will intuit because people like to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And if you're the head chef, you get tired of 
the junior chef coming and saying, Chef, why am I doing this? Yeah. So you make a story up. Yeah. And maybe even believe it yourself. But very few people test it. But besides that, I use statistics in almost everything I do. I use mathematical analysis in almost everything I do. Uh, one of the key things that sparked my modernist cuisine book originally was sous vide cooking. Yeah. For sous vide cooking, I had to figure out what the pro- appropriate cooking times were. Mm-hmm. And I did both empirical tests of that, but I also wrote a lot of code mm-hmm. and uh, simulated the flow of heat through. Co- uh, wow. Through Amazing. Nathan, um, we you know we have this time with you. It's it's almost coming to an end. We are like we are at the last question part, which is terrible because we've just about scratched the surface. Yeah. So we should definitely <laughs> come back. Like you're one of those people where each one of these topics is going to be a separate st- episode by itself. Um, but you know, like you've you have exposure to so many different areas, so many different spaces as such. You clearly take learnings from one, apply it to the other, and you do a lot of that. If if you, you know, for our audience, if you're a young person, you know, you have a few years of experience, you're out of college, you're figuring out what you want to do. When you look at this time that they have in front of them, what do you think are the things that they should work on, problems they should be solving, areas that they should think about or invest in? Like, what advice would you give to them to focus their time on? Yeah, that's a short question with a short answer. Um, <laughs> you know... <laughs> There's two levels that you can answer a question like this. So some of that is the kind of advice that your grandfather might tell you, you know, pick things that you love, mm-hmm. yeah. pick things that you're good at. Yeah. Um, it's usually hard to love something that you suck at um, <laughs> because it's frustrating. Um, yeah. uh, you might be frustrated by something you also love, but hey, at least you love it. So, of course, th- those very broad things are true um i i think there is a a tendency to overthink things um uh that people will have particularly if they're smart people and they're focused they say well i'm going to have a plan i'm going to do x which is going to lead to y and uh i remember that i had friends in high school who had these very complicated life plans that I'm going to go to this school and that's going to get me into this graduate school. And then I'm going to do this and this. And you run into those people 20 years later and the numbers of them that actually did exactly what their plan was is small. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not zero. And for some professions, uh, some professions have the giant drawback that uh, they make you decide too young. Mm -hmm. Um, Being a medical doctor is that way. So the, it's hard to be a medical doctor if you didn't decide in high school to get good grades, to get to the school that would you would then get good grades in so that you could then go get into medical school. Um, I'm not sure that that actually, as a society, that benefits us uh, <laughs> because it's not... Uh, there are people who weren't that organized when they were um, 18, in high 17, school. Yeah. yeah. Who, who still would have made an excellent physician. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine who's uh, a doctor likes to say, what do you call the person who graduated at the bottom of their uh, medical school class? A doctor? Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and after all of that rigmarole of selecting kids to go to medical school, a lot still flunk out or leave 
or go through the whole process and don't want to practice. If your heart is set on being a doctor, go ahead and be a doctor. But it's way more forgiving to realize uh, that serendipity can happen. Yeah. As uh, you two have told about how serendipity in the form of a job officer office <laughs> uh, offer for Microsoft was yeah. uh, very important to you. Yeah. And uh, you've got to be open to that. And if you're not open to that, you're going to miss opportunities. And uh, you never know. Those could be tiny opportunities. But if they're tiny ones, then you, as long as you're open to something else, you're not trapped. Right. Um, and they could be really big ones that really change your life in a giant positive way. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. So uh, it, the, you have to set that against the fact within the tech industry. Now, diving to a more focused thing, there's always fads du jour. Mm. And there are fads du jour in the 19th century in tech. Okay. Mm. Used to be like electricity. Ooh, electricity. <laughs> now it's yeah. like, it's the most. <laughs> <laughs> when people say a double E, they don't want to be an electrician. Mm. They want us to, you know, do uh, advanced electronics. Not that there's anything wrong with electricians. We need them. But uh, you have to also resist a little bit the fad du jour thing. Right. Um, now, Sometimes the fad du jour is worth it. It's important. I mean, when the internet first arose, it was the fad du jour. Mm. And there were some people that dismissed it, dismissed it totally that way. But yeah. no, it was pretty clear to me and to others that, that the internet was going to last, and it did. Yeah. Um, but there's other fads. There's a huge fad on something called push media. Oh yes, mm -hmm. Wired. Wired had a famous uh, uh, cover. Uh, you know, yes, oh, push yeah. with oh, a, yeah, a picture of a yeah. hand. Yeah, that didn't work out. Uh, um, you know, I think one of the things I think which is so remarkable about you is you've kind of followed your passions and obviously have the capability to do so across so many fields, and they've been enduring. Like hundred years from now, an amazing scrambled egg is going to be as interesting. <laughs> as it is today, uh, you know, exploring the solar system, if we survive, is going to be as interesting and we'll still be, still be finding, uh, you know, dinosaurs. Nathan, I just want to say, you know, we could probably go on for multiple hours. I mean, I think the word polymath... You probably should. I think, yeah. Nathan, if you would have us, like, you know, we'd love to, like, do another episode oh, yes. with you and just start, like, uh, pick, like, a few topics and go really deep in them because yeah. we've kind of scattered ourselves okay, across well, I'm, two I'm things. Okay, well, I'm busy, but try me again in a uh, few months. I will, okay. I will. Yeah, yeah, we will. We but, Nathan, I just wanted to say... You are the person we want to be when we grow up. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, okay, but see, you, you, you got something contradictory right there. You said grow up. <laughs> I like it. Uh, when, pe when people ask me, where did you grow up? I always say, I'm amused you think I did. But I was young. <laughs> I did when I was young. That's, a, that's unambiguous. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Nathan, this was such a delight. And I can generally say, you know, we often wonder, like, have we left somebody with anything useful episodes? I know we have because they're going to make some amazing eggs at the end of this. But no, you're just inspiring to us and for many, many years to everyone. And yeah, everyone, we're going to have links to Nathan's books, uh, his TED Talk, uh, you know, and it just highly, highly recommend. Nathan, you're one of a kind. Thank you so, so much for doing Thank this you. with Thanks us. Thanks for spending time Okay, with great. Us. Thank you. Bye.